Rise and shine. Pour yourself a cup of coffee and tune in to Good Morning Aurora. News, weather, and really cool interviews. Monday through Friday from 8 to 9 a.m. wonderful morning. Uh, we are on location at Treadwell Coffee. Good morning, y'all. Hey, what up? Shouts out. Yeah, this is live shouts. Live shouts. Y'all hear that. Um, and we've got a great interview today. We are sitting down with my friend and brother, Nick Thompson of the city of Aurora. Glad we got this one going on today. Me too. Um, we've got some news and highlights to talk about that are for the city of Aurora, specifically downtown. Uh, a couple other out the way uh, initiatives, and then we'll get into our interview. First things first, a word from our sponsor. We want to say thank you to LDJ Cleaning Professionals, uh, specializing in commercial, residential, and disinfectant cleaning, serving Aurora and the Quad Counties with over 20 years' experience in the professional cleaning industry. They offer the make ready service, post construction cleaning, window cleaning, floor maintenance, disinfectant cleaning, and general office cleaning. The home that you worked so hard to purchase, the business that you dreamed of owning. They're honored to provide their service. Hire a true professional, call them at 630-291-5435 or visit their website, ldjcleaning.com. They help you protect your investment. All right, new statewide mitigation efforts start today and this will be tier three mitigation. Uh, there's been a new wave of COVID surging across Illinois, specifically Kane, Will, and DuPage counties, unfortunately. Uh, the governor announced the entire state will be under said mitigation. So uh, some businesses and industries are being placed, quote, on pause, and others are still open. Uh, and that starts today. The Aurora City Council will be voting on a special use permit that would make way for a free healthcare clinic on the east side. Uh, Iglesia Charismatica Jesus Cristo es la Verdad Church. Spanish on point today. <laughs> Roll the R's and everything. Um, located at 551 South 4th Street, it's being reviewed by the Aurora Christian Healthcare um, nonprofit as a location for their activities for uninsured clients unable to afford copay or other costs. The clinic would be next door, which is used, uh, which used to be the 4th Street United Methodist Church. According to Aurora Christian Healthcare VP Tracy Dune, uh, the Kane County Health Department survey recently showed that there are roughly 63,000 people in Kane County without health care. The special use permit is on the consent agenda for the council meeting on the 24th, meaning that it is likely to pass. All right. Uh, the 22nd, Sunday, there's going to be a drive through turkey giveaway. We've been telling you all about this since literally last week. It's been on the gram in the face bizzle as well. Um, now, Headliners Barbershop, Endless Possibilities Auto, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and Fitness in Naperville and the Reina family are coming together to give back to the community during these hard times. Uh, many families have been struggling due to the pandemic. And these type of initiatives go a long way. So shout out to all the businesses that are involved. And the initiative is called 100 Turkeys for 100 Families. Uh, mayoral candidates have filed the maximum number of signatures to get on the April 6th ballot. There's two candidates running against our incumbent, or excuse me, incumbent mayor, Richard Irvin. They are Mr. Judd Lofshe and Mr. John Leish. Good luck to everyone. And ARTA, the Aurora Area Retired Teachers Association, is having their second drive through box dinner sale from 11.30 a.m. to 12.30 p.m. And that's gonna be on December 1st at Gaslight Manor. The public is invited, the cost is $20. Reservations are required. Deadline for reservations is Friday, November 20th. Oh, that's today, y'all, damn. We've been telling y'all about that for like two weeks now, so, you know, y'all gotta get on that. You know, that's, that's uh, tell you the menu items one more time. Uh, on the menu, the entree items are Greek chicken, roast pork, fettuccine Alfredo. Side dishes included are roasted potatoes, green beans, and dessert. Um, pro, excuse me. Arta is a local nonprofit uh, started in 1958. And let me see here. Uh, downtown Aurora's Cocoa Crawl, annual Cocoa Crawl is without the crawl this year due to COVID-19. Uh, Cocoa Crawl mugs are being sold at different places in downtown Aurora, uh, along with hot 
Coco recipe cards. Uh, and those are going to be at different businesses downtown. So you can definitely check those out. Get your cocoa on. And um, yeah, drink it. Drink that. Drink that. Take that. All right. And uh, the weather today, the current temperature is 48 degrees. It's nice outside. Uh, the high today will be 57 degrees. And that looks to be reached at about noon. The sound you're hearing is dishes being washed. Clean. Can you, can you feel the effervescence? <laughs> it's the word of the day, effervescence. All right, um, Saturday's gonna be 45 degrees, Sunday 45 degrees as well. Okay, uh, and last but not least, I wanted to take a brief moment to, to give a couple of shout outs. Uh, I wanna give a shout out to Amvents Post 103, which is located um, 1194 Jericho Road next to the Aurora Food Pantry. They've got their uh, Chicago style hot dog um, open to the public eatery today. So please check them out at 1130 a.m. Shout out to AmVets. I want to say shout out to the American Legion as well. And I want to tell you guys, oh, that's right. Holy cow. I almost forgot to tell y'all that there is going to be another senior meal distribution. I would be remiss if I did not tell you that on Monday, December 7th at 1200 East Indian Trail Road, our representatives of state uh, Barbara Hernandez of the 83rd District and Stephanie Kipowit of the 84th District, respectively, are going to be hosting another uh, meal distribution for seniors. Uh, Kane County seniors 60 years of age or older are eligible for five frozen meals. Uh, you must call to register. Registration closes Friday, December 4th at noon. All right. And for more information, call 630-338-0999. All right. And that's all the news for today on this beautiful Friday. So now we get into our interview with our brother, our man, right across this, our friend, Nick. Good to see you, my man. Likewise, brother. Thank you for having me. Come yeah, on. Yeah, good morning. Um, so we've got a bunch of stuff to talk about, mm. but the conversation is going to take um, perhaps a, a couple of narratives. We'll be talking about social justice. Okay. Uh, we'll also be talking about the state of African Americans. Uh, countrywide and also in Aurora okay. but um, also what we like to do is get let get to know you more for, sure. uh, for the folks so starting off I just said your name but please tell us who you are and where you're from sure my name is Nicholas Richard Thompson I am from Aurora Illinois I was born and raised here I moved around a little bit to other suburbs but the majority of my life has been spent in Aurora okay and this is usually the point in the interview where most people will shout their side so what side Right. East side, east side, east side, forever. Yeah. All right, the Tomcat side. Yeah. Okay. Right. <laughs> People came on here capping yesterday for the Blackhawks, so it was uh, interesting. Oh, no, we don't do that. No. All right, uh, we're on location at Treadwell, so the the pausing is for coffee, y'all. But uh, we have to have that. Um, growing up, what impact did your mom have on your life? Oh, that's a really good question. Sounds like it. Huge impact. My mom's my best friend. You know, I'm a mama boy to this day, right? And seeing her, and my parents separated, mind you, when I was in sixth grade. Uh, no, fifth grade, actually, right? So my mom, seeing her struggle and seeing her work so, so hard and always barely making the rent, always, sometimes I had to include things like that, um, but always seeing how optimistic she was and how willing she was to help other people, right? So I had, you know, aunts, uncles, cousins. And they would come stay with us, or she would help people down um, when they were down on their luck, you know, facing, you know, uh, economic distress. And that, I think, had an impact on me, uh, indirectly and directly, me not even noticing. And just her encouragement is like all I need to keep going. I know, you know, I wasn't always really, I didn't do very well uh, academically in high school. People are surprised when I tell them that. But when I graduated, my mom was so supportive of me and anything I wanted to do. And she, she essentially like signed me up for, you know, FAFSA, Wabonte Community College, where I think was a very pivotal move for me and seeing the value of education and uh, self-education beyond that. And just, she's never given up on me at any time. And now like anything I do, like she's my biggest hype person. So I, I would say she's probably the most influential person in my life. And what's your post high school uh, education? I got my associates, I got my undergrad, and I'm pursuing my master's currently. I'll be done in May. All right. All right. Good. Hurry up, May. Come on. Let's yeah, get here. Right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, you work for the city of Aurora. I do. What do you do? I'm a communications coordinator and I run the public access TV station. Okay. So essentially what that is, public access TV station is a resource to the community to come in and you can stream content on there. And historically what it was for people can come in and get, you know, lessons on video production. You can come in and, you know, stream your content that you've produced. And it was kind of this place, you know, most people know Aurora for what? Wayne's World, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like that. And that yeah. is that, you know what I'm saying? So, and I also work um, uh, adjacent to the mayor's office on different special projects. So whether it's event organizing, you know, press releases, or liaising between different departments and things like that, whatever kind of comes up. Uh, when I got my job initially, I was just purely doing the internal operations for the public access TV station. But then I think soon they saw other skill sets, and I'm, a, I'm kind of a, I'm a go-getter. If you ask me to do something, gonna do it and if I don't know how to do it I'll, I'll look it up Google's free right right so I, I really say no and I think if you ask anybody I've worked with Nick doesn't say no to anything and that might be you know my downfall but I say yes to a lot of things because I'm passionate about the city that I'm from and the causes that I support so through that it developed and I've been you know granted the opportunity to do a little bit more with the city and uh, I feel fortunate for that so now how long you been with the city it's strange it's been three years now it does not seem like that but it seems longer for some reason well, I interned for to a me, yeah, and that's that's <laughs> maybe, but yeah, I guess not my job. <laughs> not my job. <laughs> no, for sure, three years I guess seems super long to me because like yeah. it happened so quickly. It, you know, a lot of people don't know this. So I'll share a little story, an intimate one. The day I actually officially got hired, my dad had died about four hours ago at the hospital. It was like four a.m. My dad had passed away. He had been, you know. Uh, unconscious for some time, and then me, my sisters, and my siblings had made the decision to, to pull the plug. And I had the interview that morning. The interview had already been previously rescheduled. And again, I'm a person that I guess I'm always trying to, I don't like to make excuses, you know. Of course I was in, like, I, I guess, a, you know, a disheveled mental state, but I was strong enough to show up. So I go and I show up, and you know, the situation comes out because I'm not myself, and they're like, why did you come? And I'm like, well, this was not supposed to come, so. Uh, strangely enough, like after that, I just kind of threw myself into the work. And then I was already working as a, I'm a screenwriter and producer for the Media Production Digital Alliance. And we do commercials, we do narrative based screenwriting, we've done corporate videos and things of that nature. So I was already kind of working. And then once I got the city job, you know, just losing my father, I kind of just threw myself into the work, to be honest with you. So all of a sudden I look up now, I'm like 26, and I'm like, oh, it's been three years, huh? Well, so, yeah. Um, what's Aurora's biggest strength? I would say resilience and diversity. So I'm sorry if that's two, but resilience and diversity. Okay. And you want me to elaborate on that? Yeah, please. Okay, cool. So resilience, I think most people, when you first meet them, if they are not from Aurora, they know like the myths about it, right? I know there were, you know, and not the myths, but like the old images of it, right? So a lot of people know about the, the height of violence in the 90s and early 2000s. But I think it's been incredibly resilient in the sense that it's bounced back from that in a way. And it's reinventing itself. And I think it's still in that process. I don't think you, you're ever done really building, but it's still in that process of reinventing itself from some of those um, previous stigmas it had. And then when I think about diversity, I think there's a great unity here. And there, it's not always uh, apparent, but when I think there are moments that are your back against the wall and things like that, Aurora comes and shows out. You know, when I come to Aurora, at least from my experience, I see a great deal of uh, diverse culture, uh, peoples, and there's a merging of it and a collaboration of it. You know, I'm part of different advocacy groups that deal with different issues that, quite frankly, are aligned. You know, I, I believe in, you know, strong solidarity, but uh, I love to see the, the strength of people coming together um, for similar causes and different backgrounds to, to unite around a commonality. So I think I see that in Aurora. I've heard Aurora described as the little city that could. Do you think that's a fair description? Little city that could. That's interesting. I kind of like that. I, I, I think some people would take that and say, oh, that's, you know, there's a chip on our shoulder because the word little. But I don't think that's a negative connotation. In comparison, we are smaller to Chicago, the largest city, but we are the second largest city in Illinois. Right. And I think that's important to highlight. So if you're comparing it to that, we are smaller, smaller, but we do, I think, large things. We have a large capacity, and I think it's growing the potential. You know, you look at the downtown area, you can look at, you know, the Paramount, and knowing like the data 
around Paramount is one of the largest theaters, you know, in the nation. Right? Yeah. That's something a lot of people know, knowing like the history of Aurora and like this is one of the first, you know, industrialized cities to have street lights. That's where the name City of Aurora comes from. Right, the city think, of lights. Yeah. Historically, it's always, I think, done large things, had a large capacity, and it's done it on, you know, on large scales with less resources, less people, but it's still is able to achieve things that you might not otherwise think you can. So I, I think that's a, an accurate description. I don't think it's a bad one either. Okay. Um, in, in your history, being an Aurora resident, for sure. what is, um, in your opinion, what's the, what's the biggest change that you've seen take place? And I say that in a kind of open-ended fashion because, you know, I don't, I don't want to stick with just an administrative aspect yeah. or a cultural aspect or an architectural aspect, you know. I think for me, and this might be for various reasons, but I think for me there have been more community grassroots civic efforts to engage, cultivate culture. So not just engage politically, but like cultivate culture, you know, as, you know, cultural destination and hub spots. I think the art scene has been brimming. I think it's been welcoming and growing. And I think more communication, I think more communication is being done between silos. And I think that, you know, brings about more of that diversity we just spoke about earlier. So I think that has been the, the biggest change. Silos. I like, yeah. I like that. I like, and I, I'm sure the context in which you use it, you know, those those places where the mentality and the thinking process is just one silo of, the, you know, breaking through that. That's yeah. what you mean, right? Yes, okay. exactly. And I guess I'll use an example. So I know in my organizing efforts, I'm all over the place, right? I got, you know, uh, brothers and friends and, you know, people who I organize with who have records, right? I know people who are deeply into the church, you know, I know people who are in the corporate world, right? So. And they're all my brothers, right? And, right. you know, I've seen the, the cross-mingling of that, whereas previously, I don't know if that took place. So that's what I mean by silos. And I'm seeing a cross-mingling of just seeing the humanity and people and seeing that we share a lot more in common than we, we differ. What does America mean to you? You don't want to know that. No, I'm playing. Um, <laughs> so my mom probably going to get mad at me for saying this. So America means to me, I think it has incredible potential if it ever lived up to its values and principles that it, it claims. So, looks good on paper. Look, oh, theory, on paper it looks straight. You know, this melting pot, this place of land and opportunity, data doesn't show that, history doesn't show that. You know, it's very ahistorical to sit here and pretend that America has been this place of opportunity and freedom and liberty when that's not the case, right? When I think of America, in its current state, this is not what I'm saying what it could be, what its current state, it, it's still a colonial settlement with, with occupied people within it, whether you're talking about native or black people, right? And I say that because when you look at the historical development from chattel slavery, which changed into the convict leasing system, which by historic historian account was much more cruel than chattel slavery, mm -hmm. and then you go from convict leasing to black codes to Jim Crow, and then outside of Jim Crow, you start having the 50s and 60s, you see these large movements, you have the uh, counterintelligence program by the FBI, a state-sanctioned supported program that infiltrated, murdered, uh, would uh, falsely imprisoned, there's political prisoners still in jail from this program under uh, J. Edgar Hoover of the FBI director of what they identified as black seditious groups, right? Identifying Malcolm, Martin, wire tactics, discrediting them to undermine and subvert their movements. This happened in the 60s and throughout the 70s and early 80s. That, you're not a citizen. Now you might be a citizen on paper, but they just violated all your rights, your constitutional rights, for a three-year decade. And then prior to that, you were enslaved, right? So when people oftentimes say, well, slavery is a long time ago. Well, the state violence hasn't stopped for us, right? And that was in the 80s. I can get to the 90s. Now what happened in the 90s? Crime did. And in the 70s, you get the drug war. So for me, there hasn't been a modicum of effort or a, a, a year or 10-year or one-year respite of not violence on black and dark-skinned colonized people. They're just happy. This is historic. I mean, you can't argue with empirical evidence, right? I mean, so when we get to the 2000s, we, we also see still violence upon black people. Right. We see with predatory loans and the new revised way of redlining. I think that's another thing. So even in the early 2010s, we still see violence against, you know, uh, colonized black and uh, native people. And I think sometimes people see a black president and that gave them a false sense of progression that we had went to a post-racist society. Yeah but it was just more covert. And you know, so for me, it's hard to ever say that it is ever lived up to its principles when it has not for many people. And I recognize black people, natives that still occupy colonized people. 
time and, ne- and neo-colonial things. Um, on that note, the opportunity that America has to live up to those ideals and become those ideals, for sure. the on-paper version for all citizens, is that feasible? I'll say yes. I'm a, a revolutionary optimism. I'll say yes. Because I think there is a rising consciousness of people who realize there is a lot of work to be done. There's a great book, and I know we're going to get to talking about books, but it's oh, we are. Yes. American Exceptionalism and American Innocence, A History of Fake News. A History of Fake News, right? And there's been a long, a long historical culmination of false narratives about black people, natives, and poor people in general, and a lot of uh, immigrants as well, sure. in a way to oftentimes divide working class, crush labor movements, to scapegoat people for economic failures on these groups of people. Like you see, I think we've seen it most recently, and it's been done before, you know, immigrants are taking jobs, right? You, you've heard that. One, this is it true, right? Uh, any economist will tell you that uh, oftentimes immigrant labor fills gaps in the labor market, which strengthen economies. Right. Outside of that, no one can take a job. Your job is given away by a capitalist who decides he wants to maximize profit by reducing wages. So. Oftentimes, the poor are pit against the poor while the capitalist escapes, and it's never, ever criticized, right? So those are other things that we, we think about. Um, but what was the question? <laughs> the question was... Uh, oh, is it viable? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Is, it, is, it, is it feasible? Could, is it, it, feasible? could it even happen that America could I uh, live, it, up, live I, up to those notions and citizens would feel that... As a part of the citizen. Right. Yeah, I think it's possible. And like I said, a revolutionary optimism, and uh, we have a rising consciousness. I think the youth and my nieces, my nephews, the generation, my generation itself, I think is very powerful and very radical. And then, which I think we have radical circumstances, so you're gonna need radical change to do sure. that. That's why I say that. And I think the generation before me have no commitments to the myths that America has imposed, right? They don't really, go ahead. No, I'm, don't mind me, keep going, oh, okay, keep cool. going. Yeah, yeah, your question. yeah. yeah no. so the, 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 the incoming generation, I think they're called Gen Z, Zoomers, they, a lot of them, when I meet them, when I'm organizing, they are disillusioned with the American system, right? They don't fall for some of the Cold War propaganda. They're not interested in the tradition for tradition's sake. They are really, really open-minded and destroying the binary. They, they see sexuality, gender on the spectrum, which, which mind you, like, a lot of gender binary was imposed through colonization. Like Pre-Colonial Africa is a good book and it's called uh, Being and Becoming and it's a collection of essays by people of the diaspora and people in the continent of Africa talking about gender and sexuality and gender roles even right. and how those got perverted through colonization. So, well, I go off on a lot of tangents, but essentially I, I do see it as feasible, but it'll take work. It won't just happen spontaneously. It's gonna take organizing, it's gonna take political consciousness, it's gonna take unity, it's gonna take solidarity, and I think the upcoming generations have more of that and are ready to take on the cause. What's the state of African-Americans in Aurora? In Aurora, interesting. Okay, so depending who you ask, you know, I think last time I checked, uh, the, the population here was about 12%, right? Right. So when I was discussing with some of the county sheriffs, the, the four counties, disproportionately it is African-Americans, but we are the lowest number. But this is a national, this is a national issue. This is a national issue of inequality and, 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 and inequities throughout the nation. It's not unique to Aurora, mind you, but it is something that I think is disproportionately uh, plaguing black men in particular. And unfortunately, this is something that can only be fixed through, I think, this and a lot of policy and under development of communities. It's gonna take a time to build up communities, build up people back up so they can be prosperous and have self-determination and be empowered. I think we have a you know a, a large connected black community, or it's growing connected. I see people like Pobump Society. I see you know shouts. grassroots. What's up? Shouts. Yeah, shouts out to those brothers. I see grassroots efforts by like Echo. I think the People's Coalition, uh, newly forming, newly forming a federation that's going to be primarily focused on black causes, but you know extending solidarity to all social justice issues. I think those are good. I think you need grassroots efforts to advocate and to serve the interests of, of, of different populations of people while maintaining solidarity. So I think the state is, it could always be better. Um, you don't ever like to look at the numbers of you know, disproportionate people you know, in prison, disproportionate uh, people in, unhoused, things like that, when you are the, 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 the 
a shorter number of a total population, but in all the wretched conditions, you're the highest, right? That's so not coincidental. To be 12% of the population and 80% of the prison system. Exactly. Yeah, yeah I mean, yeah. These are the things we want to address. So, but I think there's always room for improvement. Again, this is a national issue. This isn't unique to Aurora. This is anywhere you go in the nation, you'll see that. Recidivism rates are 70%. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. What does the word strength mean to you? A good one. I think the word strength can mean a lot of things, but most importantly, at its, at its core, it is, again, I think resilience. Um, so sometimes people will associate strength just with power, but I think a mental fortitude is a strength, right? You know, I think a strength is an asset that you have that is sharpened and is something that isn't easily defeated or taken away. You know, it's getting kind of abstract, but that's what I see as a strength, an asset that can't be easily defeated or taken away, so. Um. Who are some of your um, who are some of your favorite black leaders? This can be historical. Bet. Okay. Hold on. I'm wait for that blender. <laughs> you got a blender, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so for sure, I think first and foremost, Angela Davis, a former Black Panther member, uh, part of the Communist Party, a prison abolitionist, you know, a scholar. She's been very impactful for me. Her work, Malcolm X. He's one of the first books I actually finished, and it actually, I could say, had an impact where like I was like, whoa, right? Eyes open. Eyes open. So beyond there, that began, I think, my political uh, maturation from reading Malcolm X and seeing his development. Because his whole life, when you look at Malcolm X, it's all transformation. You know, he went from Detroit Red to, from Malcolm Little to Detroit Red to uh, Malcolm X finally dropped the name when he was at uh, NOI, left the NOI, became El, El, Haj, El, Malik, El Haj Malik Shabazz, and then he went to Africa, a lot of people don't know about it, he got another name, Omawala, right? Received, I think, uh, in one of the languages, uh, I think I want to say Swahili, uh, meaning to, uh, the child has returned. Mm -hmm. So he's his whole life of transformation. He came back, he you know had Pan-African sensibilities, um, Thomas Sankara, a lot of people don't know about Thomas Sankara. He was a revolutionary that led a, a revolt in Burkina Faso, who was uh, previously the Baltic people. The Baltic people were under French colonial rule, and in 83, he led a revolution. And in four years, he was assassinated in a, a coup back and forth by you know, American uh, officials. And what he did in four years was he reduced the, um, or increased the literacy rate. He um, had a mass immunization, so people were dying in this country for very simple things that you won't die in an industrialized country, but he, he immune, uh, immunized all the children. He gave back the land to the peasants so they can cultivate it. He was able to, you know, he took all the fleets of all the cars from the, the, the previous administration that were being funded by the French government to do what they wanted. He took all of that and cut everybody's salary. You know, he wouldn't allow people in the government to have like basic necessities. And he said this, he said, if the people are suffering, we will suffer with them until we are at a stage of development that no one has to. Like he had a very interesting mindset of, we serve the people, he really meant to serve the people. I don't think there's a leader in history who's done as much as him in a short time and had such a righteous love of the forsaken, the forgotten, and the wretched of the earth. Um, there's so many things I can, I can go about. Like, I can send you his work. He, there's a long list of what he accomplished in four years before he was assassinated. And it's just no short of just amazing and remarkable. So, Thomas Sankara to Andrew Davis, Malcolm X. And then I think I'll end on Ella Baker because she was someone who said that she wanted to walk among the people and not lead them. She didn't like the concept of the charismatic leader. She was very critical of Martin at times. Um, that she said, you know, the movement made Martin, Martin didn't make the movement. And sometimes we forget that and we put leaders in front of things when it's mass movements of people who create change within society. So Ella Baker humbles me to say, we are not leaders, we walk among other leaders. We can empower people, but we don't, we're not out here like some charismatic, I'm the only one who has the, I'm the oracle. No, we are, you know, among the people. I think that is really powerful in organizing to remind yourself of that. Because sometimes people get away, the ego, the human nature to get away. That, mm -hmm. So she humbles me. Uh, Ella Baker. empowers me. Thomas Sakara inspires me, and Andrew Davis just sets me right. Um, I, I've always been interested uh, because I do believe that with the mindset and the knowledge that we consume, we also consume the arts, specifically music. Um, what do you listen to? I listen to a very diverse range of music. It depends what I'm doing. So when I'm reading, I actually have a playlist set, and it's a bunch of orchestra music, it's lyricist music, 
it's uh, piano based, things like that. When I'm running, it's like punk rock, hip hop, you know, uh, even metal. You know, if I'm like, you know, having a, a day, uh, a, a, a day at the beats, I'm chilling. You know what I'm saying? It'll be you no know, more R&B, poppy tunes. So yeah, like, I love Nas the Esco, the Esco <laughs> And uh, I love, I love dance tunes. I got a whole playlist I share with you of dance tunes, but that are politically conscious. You know what I'm saying? And I call it a playlist, Dance, Dance, Think. I name on my playlist. I'm always proud of my name. And if they're really bouncy, I got some Pharrell on there. I got a lot of artists on there who are talking about social, like social justice issues and political consciousness and a dancey like Caribbean vibe. There's like all types of stuff. So yeah, we'll put you on with it. Okay. All right. Yeah. Um, and the, we're going to get into books here uh, momentarily too. But um, one thing that I've, uh, I like is that you display your... You're, you're, the things that you like, like you, you let them be known. You'll post the books you're listening, or you see that you're reading and things like that. Like I like how you've been uh, vocal and outspoken with the, the stuff that you consume, sure. because I think like like knowledge is power, man. And you know, um, and the autobiography of Malcolm X is, I mean, I'll, I'll be on record to say like I think that should be standard reading oh, for, for sure. African American kids at least. Woo, yeah, I mean, it's it'll, it'll change your life. And you know what's funny? I always make a joke about Malcolm X. Like his political analysis could be applied to today, right? He talks about lesser evil voting. He talks about you know, you know, we're not outnumbered or we're we're outnumbered. We're not outnumbered. We're outorganized. He talks about a lot of the things that we suffer from today about the capitalist system. He discussed in the early '60s, and he said this is what you'll be dealing with. And sometimes it's eerie reading him, especially some of his previous speeches that don't get as popularized. And I'm like, he knew. He understood. Yeah, and he well, and if you read the book, he's talking about like the Kennedy administration, yeah, which is an administration that was not that long ago. You know, it's in the scheme of things. I yeah. mean, uh, this, uh, the city of the city site posted the pictures of Kennedy here in Aurora. Exactly. Yeah. So that's history that you could not literally, but you could touch. That's that's yeah. it's, it's still very relevant history. Yeah. Um, the time is now 8.15 a.m. and you are listening and watching Good Morning Aurora, the second largest city's first daily news podcast. And we are joined by our friend and brother, Nick Thompson. Uh, all right, books. Books. Let's get into books. Uh, we've discussed three titles already, Manufacturing Consent, The Autobiography of Malcolm X, and then the one that you mentioned about colonialism. Uh, colonialism. Oh, American Exceptionalism, um, American Innocence. Okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, History of Fake News. Really okay. powerful book. I think everybody should read it. Uh, what's another powerful book? Let me see. So depending on what you want to jump into, we could do economics, we could do philosophy, political science. What was the book you were reading when I walked in? Oh, The End of Policing. Good. <laughs> 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 By my brother uh, Alex S. Vitelli. Okay. Uh, what's it about? The title sounds easy. It was simple enough, but sure. So he goes through. The fact that these reforms that are oftentimes popularized by uh, liberals and then the arguments made by conservatives uh, around policing in particular of why they fall flat and why we still have this issue of mass incarceration. And he talks about the end of policing. He said it's not the lack of diversity. It's not the training. It's not the procedures. It's not the protocol. He said it's policing itself. Right. The expansion of it and the role they play in society. He goes through how their how houselessness is criminalized. He goes through the school to prison pipeline with SRO officers. And he uses empirical data. And I, let me share some things with you that I think are ironic. Not only is using police to deal with a lot of these, these issues immoral, it's actually fiscally irresponsible. So there was like four studies, and one of them looked at 800 people in and out of the criminal justice system and also receiving health care. And it cost about, within three years, $100 million, $137 million. The study showed that if they had just given these people housing and the services before up front, it would have been 43% less. Right. You save money. So that was one study. He uh, had another one where he looked at per person what they were spending on houseless people, on their services, and like instead of just solving the problem at the root with uh, you know policing and putting them through this, the court system and all these other fines and fees, what they saw was per person this city, uh, New York, was spending 18,000 $18, or 18,000 per person. Whereas if you would have just put housing first, it was 11,000. Right, and he has an entire chapter on this. These are just two of the ones that come to mind. There's an entire chapter on how fiscally irresponsible it is policing as we have. He looks at how policing in schools came to be after the, the, the tragic Columbine shooting. That's really what brought them into schools. But there is no empirical evidence suggesting that they improve the school, uh, school experience. So why are they there? And then when you look at the data, he shows that there are 
significant lack of nurses, social workers, and mental health professionals in schools, but they have contracts with police, police officers. He's saying, again, morally objectifiable, but also, also fiscally irresponsible, right? So it's fine. Uh, conservatives like to pride themselves on being fiscally responsible. If you were, you'd actually be a part of the, the changing the police movement, but you're not. So uh, I, would, I would reevaluate your politics, right? Um, and same thing for, I think, liberals, because he talks about both. He's very measured in this. He said it's not a liberal conservative problem. Both of them are offering solutions that won't lead to the desired outcomes that we have of public safety. You know, they're not deterring crime. Um, the prison industrial complex doesn't rehabilitate, and it's not ensuring public safety. So that's kind of his whole his whole premise, and he gets into a lot of other things uh, too. But it's a good book, and it's really accessible. So it's not bogged down in academic language. He talks about the issue, and then the next chapter he'll talk about how to how to improve it, and then it takes that kind of uh, passage all the way through. What is qualified immunity? Qualified immunity. So. Basic terms, what it is, is so public servants can kind of escape responsibility if they're, if something were to happen on the job and they say they were to, example, excessive force or there was a story where somebody came in, they're on the job, they shot somebody's dog. They were free from civil suit. So qualified immunity makes sure that it protects them. If they, even if they make a mistake where normal people would have, could be subject to a civil suit, they are not. Correct. Yeah, and a lot of protesters and a lot of activists uh, nationwide have been calling for the, you know, the end of qualified immunity so that police can be held accountable. I um, think that's one step um, right. to it, but like that's a, I think it's a big thing. No, I, I, I believe that it's, I think it's the most evil thing since uh, Elvira. I mean, I, I think it's, uh, <laughs> I, I do. I mean, I, um, you know, instead of defunding the police, I'd rather yank qualified immunity. I mean, that's my personal opinion. I, I, I really think that uh, qualified immunity is the bread with which the sandwich of injustice is made. I mean, it all starts right there. I mean, the idea that you could choke a guy out, he dies, and then you could plausibly legally represent yourself with the, with the, uh, with the excuse that, that you, didn't, you didn't know that his choking would be violating his civil rights. I mean, that's, I mean, it's... You know, it's 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 just it's, it's ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. Um, now, and real quickly, can I can I mention sure. something yeah. real quick? Because you said something, and I think I, I want people to look into this. Um, so there's a there's a concept my my organization Black Alliance for Peace supports uh, supports this movement, and it's called community control of the police. So it's different than defunding. It's different than abolishing. So what it does is it creates democratic control of the police. So you have a say in the funding procedures, practices, hiring, firing, and their budget. So in theory, it's an elected board of the community. And if the police department is engaging the community in, I think, meaningful ways, then there will be a relationship there. And I think that's how you build the relationship, because there's no relationship currently, especially with poor communities of color. It's just not there. This, I think, would empower people. It would make them more civically engaged. And it would start building that relationship to say, we have not just an oversight board, but we have a, a working relationship in how we're funding you. Why do you need this? How, and essentially, you control how you're going to be policed, in a sense. And I think if you're for democracy, I don't know why people would be opposed to that. And if the police department is good, pro, mind you, I think the issue is structures. I don't think it's good in back office. It's structure that's, at, that, that's sure. at the root. But if you are for democracy and you believe that your community is, you know, your, your community uh, officers are, are good, well then, they should have nothing to worry about community control because and that would, I think, be shown and emphasized through the relationship that's built through community control of the police. Uh, to my knowledge, Aurora hasn't had a Ferguson incident. Uh, and I'm talking just on scale of, you know, For sure. absolute disreputable, egregious, um, you know, uh, violence against a person. Um, so we acknowledge policing and its wrongs, but it would be a fair assessment that compared to other police departments in America, <laughs> Chicago, Aurora Ooh. is certainly nowhere near the scale of 
violence and abuses against citizens. Is that a fair assessment? I think it would, I would say so. I think when I look at it, Ferguson is actually a unique, uh, an interesting <clears throat> example. So in 2010, grassroots organizations actually appealed to the DOJ and the state's attorney for excessive police violence against the community. This is four years before the Mike Brown lynching in the right. incident, right? Right. Nothing happened, of course. Four years later, Mike Brown is, you know, brutally murdered by the police. And they now investigate. And what they find by 2015, it comes out, the case is released. And they found that there had been an 80% increase uh, from, like, I think, 08 to 10. And then it kept increasing of the fines, fees, and forfeitures that were taking place from the police department. And the main fiscal, re like, fiscal uh, for the city, like, resource was coming from police fines and forfeitures. Yeah, I'm familiar with that study. You're, um, that's an excellent reference right there. That's, yes, that's right. They, it showed basically for the listener, what it showed was that Ferguson was funding itself on many levels, administration, yep. city bureaucracy, through the subjugation, fines, fees, towing your car, now you gotta pay to get all of it. Court costs, bonds, all of it. It was, uh, yeah, it was disgraceful. For sure. So I, I highlight that because that's the key contradiction. There's a profit incentive to keep prisons filled. There's a profit, a profit incentive to do bogus ticketing, fines, and fees. So even the best police departments are oftentimes locked into this responsibility. Sure. You know, they have become tools of social control and revenue generation. Now, this isn't saying that your neighbor next door was a cop is on some evil scheme. Most people are, they're good people. I'm saying how policing is structured in a system that's profit-driven capitalism, this is almost inescapable of, of kind of a, a self-fulfilling prophecy and perpetuating, police perpetuating the needs for themselves through funding me mechanisms, perpetuating violence and things of that nature. So when you underserved, these underserved communities, you take out the social capital, you send them to jail, kids grow up without parents, so on and so forth, and actually creating this cycle of, of, of you know facilitating crime to take place. You well, know? hold on, Nick. Why can't they just pull themselves up by the bootstraps? You know, more black people get shot by black people in the ghetto. But hold on, they cause the yeah. So there's a, there's a, there's a, the Southern um, Law Institute, and they did a, a study on black and black crime, and they debunked it. Right, this the the, the, the myth of black. First two things I want to talk about black and black crime. One, black and black crime. Let's say it was real. Let's say I, I grant you that it doesn't justify the brutality by the state on citizens. Never completely lived. different conversation. Exactly. Yeah. So your your argument's already very fallacious, right. and it's very disingenuous. Right. Secondly, it is debunked, and this idea that you know um, black people are what what it does is perpetuate the idea that black people are inherently violent. Right. And which is goes back to race science, which is what oh, yeah. was used to justify slavery. So I'd be very careful using that language because from that language, that's what that's white supremacy. Correct. There's no way around. That's white supremacy. You know that wasn't me with that. that was oh no, I know what you did. you said so we can talk about it. Nah, 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 nah. Uh, and the Maybe if you're real unofficial on my own show, man, like that. <laughs> no, 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 bro. No, no, no. no I'm just playing, bro. And it reminds me of a book, another book for listeners. Two books I want to recommend. Yeah. The so-called bootstraps argument gets demolished. One is called how uh, capitalism has um, underdeveloped black the black community, and the other one is the myth of black buying power by Jared Ball. Two. I'm familiar with that title. Two incredible books. Again, I'm always really, really driven by citations. So I look at people's citations when, they, when I read and where they're getting the data from. It's all data-driven, it's all empirical. Take your pick and listen to these arguments of why this idea of the free market has never been accepted, the so-called free market has never been accessible for the vast majority of poor, black, uh, working class, and you know, again, colonized people. It's just, it, it hasn't been, right? I think the data that I looked at most recently, black people by 2040 are gonna have a negative net wealth combined, mm -hmm. that the free market's not working for you. Nor does it work for most working class people, mind you, not just black people, sorry. Right. But uh, black people are especially marginalized, as well as you know other people, um, immigrants, uh, native people, um, have a, a special degree of, of, of violence and inequality impressed upon them. So. How has COVID impacted your life? You know, I think it's had me, made me uh, pivot and take a step back and I've been doing my master's during uh, COVID, so there's been pros and cons to it, actually, really. But just 
trying to stay healthy. I have a mom, you know, uh, and I talked about it earlier, my best friend, who has a lot of underlying health ailments. So it's been imperative for me to try to keep her safe. But like the first like three months, didn't hug her. I would come in by a mask, drop off groceries and, you know, things like that. So it wasn't really, you know, I'm close with my mom, but not to be able to have that, that closeness and intimacy was, was difficult for her even, and me, and me and myself. So making sure my family's safe. Luckily, no one in my immediate family has caught it yet, and everybody has been pretty healthy. Um, economically, there's been some distress from, and some, uh, for some of my people, but for the most part, people are taking care of each other. I heard you have 235 unused stars here at Treadwell. How did you find that out? Who's Second largest is- city's first daily news podcast got all the news, brother. Come on, man. We got mad resources. Yeah, that, that is, I think it's more now. I'm not going to lie to you. That is true. That is very true. Um, use some stars, man. They got good drinks, man. They, you know, get to, you know, you, you like just getting your, your stuff. I, I know how you do it. You come, you get your stuff, you read your book, you out. Yeah. Have your meeting here if you're having a meeting here and just keep it moving. Just keep it moving. Yeah. When COVID's over, how about this? I'm, I'll drink on me. Come <laughs> when COVID's officially when it's really safe and we open back up and we're comfortable, I'm going to ball out for the cabana. You got to get a free drink. Because I think that's about 20 drinks, brother. That's that about is. 20 drinks. That's 20 teams. That's a whole party. That so, is. Let's we'll do it. Hope um, Chad is okay with that. Um, so, and, and before we end the interview, I would like you to uh, take a moment to talk about what you think Aurora, um, or what you'd like to see in Aurora in the next um, five, 10 years and things like that. Uh, I want to plant the flag in a conversation though and say that you are working with Goldfinch Cafe. I am. Which the initiative of a pay what you can food truck, um, I think is a fantastic and honorable um, goal. I, I, you know, I really like to see that happen and take place. So congratulations. So since you're part of, I'm asking you this because you're, you're literally part of change. So it's part what oh. you want to see, but also what are you working towards? For sure. So, try to hit three pillars. I think one thing I'm seeing is more young, really intelligent, audacious people running for office. Word I up. want to see more of that. Word up. You know, shout out to Sandra Gonzalez, uh, Giselle Gonzalez, no relation. They're running, you know, for the Wabanzi Community College trustee. I want to see more of that, right? Anybody that knows me, I'm very skeptical of the federal government with reason. I have my citations. Um, that change is gonna be very difficult there, but on the municipal level, there is key opportunity to change your material conditions and really improve people's lives on the municipal level. Mm-hmm. So I wanna see more people running for office. I wanna see the concept of mutual aid uh, broadened. Real quick, mutual aid is, is a reciprocal voluntary exchange mm-hmm. of resources because we recognize responsibility to ourselves. So take care of your neighbors, you know what I'm saying? Uh, organizations like ECHO, you know, point to point, Kane County are extending mutual aid to some of the unhoused people and other people struggling with bills. And I want to see that become a norm, right? A mutual aid fund, something like that could be citywide, that we recognize that when other people are taken care of, this is better for everybody. And that we see these struggles that are common to us all and that could be uprooted and changed through, I think, maximum effort of people just recognizing humanity in each other. So I want to see mutual aid be a concept that people adopt. Because I, people always talk about community. I love community. Mutual aid is community in action. Community is the work. You got love for the people like I do, right? You know what I'm saying? There's this quote, and it's funny. It's by this uh, liberatory theologian. He uh, was a revolutionary and a, and a Catholic priest. And he said, when I feed the poor, they call me a saint. When I ask why they are poor, they call me a communist. Calvin? What's up? Calvin? Was, Calvin. It, was it Calvin who said that? No, 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 no. His name is um, Marcio um, Rosio. Okay. Um, and he's a Catholic priest. And he said, he said, when I feed the poor, they call me a saint. And when I ask why they are poor, why they are poor, they call me a communist, right? Um, and I think that's very interesting to highlight. So oftentimes people don't feel comfortable with inequality or injustice. But then when we try to make changes, I think they are stifled or opposed because of silly nonsense that are straw men, right? Misrepresentation of people's arguments, right? To better refute it. And I see that so often, and it's not genuine political discourse and dialogue, right? Most people want community safety, right? No one likes, so when, I, when people are saying they want community control or defunding the police, they're not saying they want chaos. Right. It's representative of that, but it's not, right? Most people want people taken care of, right? Um, um, I think generally, most people you talk to, they want their community to be safe, prosperous. It's just how, about how we go about it. And I think we have to be more open and honest 
to have conversations and they're more conducive to change. So I want to see mutual aid expanded. I want to see young people running for office. And I want to see, you know, the Goldfinch come to fruition. And I want to, you know, I hopefully encourage more people to get civically engaged in any way. Join an organization that, you know, aligns with your values and your beliefs and start doing like little work and be very surprised of how much you can change in your direct surroundings and your direct neighborhood and your direct like community or uh, district just by getting like 10, 20 people together. You'd be very surprised how much you can change. So I'm really big on localizing the issues and uh, municipalism. The show ends on a positive note. For sure. What is your message today to the people of Aurora going into the weekend? For sure. Outside of COVID, of masking up and being safe, what I would say is, you know, um, love your neighbor, love your family. I think we just got out of a very politically contentious, you know, um, presidential election and elections down ballot. We won't connect with everybody, but you should strive to always lead with a revolutionary love and a radical empathy to try to understand, right? I've organized and helped with people who we are diametrically opposed, but I care about their humanity despite. That's what, that, at the very level of their human being, and we want to make sure people are taken care of. And then through that, I've had people be converted and be like, Nick, what you, that, that stuff you're talking about? That's right. We want to see the world like that. How you do? You know, my politics are emotion. I believe my politics are, you know, uh, my behavior are manifested through it. So I try to leave my life. <laughs> Sorry. I try to leave my life uh, driven by my political philosophy and not just talk and theorize about it, but we get out and try to, and try to genuinely do it. So I hope what I want to uh, tell people is be safe, you know, love your neighbor, uh, you know, get to know your neighbor if you don't know them. Cherish the family, the people you have. We just got a very contentious place. Let's try to, uh, you know, genuinely heal um, and work towards that, though. Because it's not just going to happen by itself. On behalf of the second largest city's first daily news podcast, we want to say thank you for sitting down with us today and talking to us and shopping it up. Absolutely. All great, to the people. Great conversation. Great conversation. Thank and, you. Uh, it was. I appreciate you. Uh, uh, I love the work you're doing. Thank you, man. I, I wish you uh, much success. And everything you do, because everything you're doing is helping Aurora. So I appreciate, appreciate it, man. I hope it is. <laughs> um, hold on. Come to Treadwell for your drinks. They're making them right now. You can hear that in the background. Live, yeah. fresh, <laughs> fresh drinks. That's a matcha, or I don't know what it is actually. Um, the uh, be blessed, be safe, be strong this weekend for everybody. Uh, Headliners uh, Barbershop, Hunter Turkey. For a hundred family giveaway, big initiative going on in the city. Does Goldfinch have anything coming up? We're working on a couple of events. We're actually sending out a uh, holiday cards just to show our appreciation for different people, and we're going to be working on some secret things, trying to, have to do some online virtual events, trying to pivot so people can remain safe, but we can still want to, you know, fundraise and got some, got some new things. Yeah, got some new things in the works. So excited! It's exciting. Okay. All right. Um, everybody, be safe. Be healthy out there, um, wear your mask, and we will see you guys here Monday for the second largest city's first daily news podcast. Once again, the most dedicated show in all of America. Peace. There we go.